What I'd like to speak about this evening is the long journey to a bow. And there are many times when students, both old and new, ask me why it is that people come into the meditation room and bow to the Buddha statue, or why it is that we appear to bow to you at the end of a sitting. Some people assume it's a kind of expectation, it's something you're supposed to do. Some people assume it's a kind of ritual reserved for advanced students. Some people tell me they're uncomfortable with it, that it smacks of a kind of religiosity that they'd hoped to be free from when they came to this tradition. And I think, in truth, there are many reasons for a bow. Sometimes it's a gesture of respect and appreciation. At times it can be a gratitude for the long lineage of teachings that have, and teachers that have gone before us. For some people, the bow is a kind of taking of refuge, not obviously in a Buddha statue but in their own possibility of awakening and the path to that. For some people, the bow is a way of setting a clear intention for the practice period they're entering into. And I'm sure that there are probably reasons that I don't know about. But what I would like to really start by speaking about this evening is my own long journey, a very long journey, to a bow. When I began to practice in a Tibetan tradition and culture, I became very immediately aware that this was a serious bowing tradition, and not just an inclination of the head or putting one's hands together, but really a full prostration tradition. In fact, you know, the truth is there are many Tibetans who go on pilgrimages of many hundreds of miles without taking a single step but doing full prostrations the entire way. I was a little surprised when I first arrived in this Tibetan community to notice this rather odd phenomena of people walking around with these big lumps on their forehead. And then I came to see that they were calluses. <laughs> they were bowing calluses. Never mind their knees. So when I began to train in that tradition, the first thing I saw when I entered the hut of my teacher was a few old students doing full prostrations at his feet. And my first response was really at a gut level. It was very visceral, and before it even entered the level of thought. And it was a major no way. No way. I saw it as a kind of humiliation, as a subjugation, as a kind of self-effacement. And, you know, certainly I had plenty of pride And when this did enter the level of thought, you know, my thoughts were, well, here sits this old, bald, plump, unsmiling guy, 
you know, swaddled in his red robes, and why would I lower myself before him? Or who is he to deserve or to warrant this? I didn't even have the awareness to notice these recurrent words and these recurrent emotions of I, me, you, uh, him, mine, high, low, better, worse, worthy, unworthy. All I knew was the whole scene really troubled me. Now, over the years, of course, of practice, a little more awareness grew in the light of the teaching, and in truth, I felt a growing respect for the depth of wisdom and compassion and patience uh, my teacher communicated. And I found myself inching towards a bow. You know, sometimes I would have a little bob of my head, you know. Uh, You know, it's kind of like a token bow. Um, And sometimes it was a deeper and a heartfelt bow, but there was still always some tension in it for me, some sense of uh, unease and withholding. Then over the years, I continued to practice in other bowing cultures. I went into Thai monasteries and saw elderly nuns with many, many years of practice on their knees before young monks in their teens. And I saw actually there that the bow only went one way of the women towards the men. And, and I, I must admit, you know, in that situation, I went into full-blown rebellion, you know, against the expectation, against the ritual, and I'm pretty sure I never bowed once, you know, which didn't make me that popular in the monastery, in truth. And I went to Korea, you know, and there was another bowing culture, but here it was a little different, you know, the moment I arrived at the monastery gate, you know, there were all these monks bowing to me, faces smiling, and, you know, I thought, this is pretty neat. (laughs) (laughs) And I was really happy, I became, you know, I was bowing away, bowing and genuflecting all over the place, you know. And then, you know, and there's this whole question for me about expectation and ritual and power. And over the years, I must admit, I've come to see that bowing, not just as a physical gesture, but actually as a pathway of investigation and inquiry and invitation to wisdom. And bowing for me has become, or did become, a kind of metaphor for understanding many aspects of the Dharma, pride and self and discriminating wisdom and boundaries and conceit and self-image and separation. I saw the bow as a way of, the pathway towards the bow, as a way of understanding much of this. So for me, bowing, I thought was, you know, this was no small thing. It was a journey. And by the way, I just really want to state really clear, clearly, this talk is not an encouragement towards the non-bowers amongst you to suddenly take up bowing. There is nothing worse to me than a bow that comes out of expectation or should or demand. 
And I think perhaps the first, the first question that I found myself addressing is to acknowledge, as Kate Wheeler actually put it in an article she wrote, bowing, not scraping. And we can often think of bowing or as a way of kneeling or humbling ourselves before something or someone who we deem or who deem themselves to be more worthy of respect than we are. And certainly that was the home of my major resistance and in truth of me of being somewhat of a worthy resistance as if the bow born of these kind of expectations and hierarchies was somehow a statement of my unworthiness. I think clearly over centuries, there's been for women out of countless conditions, really too long and complex to go into at this moment, way too much scraping. And for many women, the journey of renunciation of scraping has been a long and hard path, a path of reclaiming sovereignty, reclaiming dignity and respect, a way of reclaiming inner reliance, and really a way of reclaiming their own heart and integrity. And this path has never been an invitation to surrender discriminating wisdom, which calls us to clearly understand the difference between a bow and a scrape. You know, and a scrape holds a lot of self-abandonment, a lot of abdication, sometimes a lot of fear. And in my understanding, a true bow doesn't ask for any of that abdication. But instead, a true bow can be a radical act of love and freedom. Suzuki Roshi, great Zen teacher, He once said, when you bow, there is no Buddha, and there is no you. One complete bow takes place. That is all. This is nirvana. Now, my long journey towards a bow has been and is a contemplation of what in this teaching in Pali is called mana. Mana translates as conceit, or the conceit of self. And I think it's very important to understand that conceit in this way is used in a way which means and translates a little bit differently, probably, than how we usually use the word conceit, which is often about self-flattery or smugness or superiority. And certainly I've come to understand in my own path that we should never understand the power or underestimate, I'm sorry, underestimate the power of the conceit of self and how ingeniously it can disguise itself and how it has the power to keep us very locked in this duality of self and other, to separate and to divide and in very powerful ways the conceit of self perpetuates suffering. So in one of the maps of awakening that the Buddha taught, the conceit of self is really the last obstacle to be seen through and to be let go of in the journey towards full and complete liberation. 
In other words, before that letting go, you know, craving is gone, ill will is gone, fear is gone, doubt is gone, aversion has gone. That these are all easier to let go of than the conceit of self. So we might get a picture of the size of the cloth of mana or the conceit of self. So how does mana or this conceit of self manifest? It manifests as superiority conceit, inferiority conceit, and equality conceit. (laughs) Pretty much covers the whole basis, doesn't it? (laughs) In fact, in one of the suttas of the Buddha, he says, one who has truly penetrated this threefold conceit is said to have put away, has has put an end to suffering. And that within this threefold conceit of being better than, worse than, or the same as, is held the whole world of self-view, of all the comparisons and evaluation and the measuring that goes on in our life, that within this threefold conceit is held all the striving and the despair, the ideas of success and failure, and that within this threefold conceit are held all the ways that we perpetuate the dualities and the positions of I and you, of self and other, and all of the jealousy and envy and resentment and fear, and beliefs in unworthiness that really do cause so much suffering and pain in our hearts. I held all the conflicts that in a way disbar us, disbar us from true depths of empathy and loving kindness and compassion. Now mana, or the conceit of self, really describes a way that we contract around and form a view of ourselves or a view of others. So let's first look at this way that this contraction expresses itself in superiority conceit. The times that we feel better than another, smarter than, Superiority conceit can gather around actually almost anything. (laughs) But it can gather around our appearance or our bodies, you know, that we're more attractive, we're slimmer, we're more beautiful than someone else. It can, as people who are a little older might realize, we might let go of that one, but we might replace it with another one that contracts around, I'm a little more toned, you know, I'm a little fitter, you know, than you are. In the last year, the gym I go to, it it had a rowing trial, you know, who could row the most lengths in a set period of time. And guess what? I won for my (laughs) age group. And the most embarrassing part of this, it was not getting the T-shirt. The T-shirt was okay. But the most, the most difficult part for me was that they put my name up on the door of the gym. 
And I thought, why am I embarrassed? I thought, why am I embarrassed? This is so interesting to me. Why do I actually feel embarrassed by that? Uh, a little suspect here. But we see that to be better than, we need a you for comparison and judgment. Superiority can, see, can gather around our minds, around our intellects. We might listen to someone else say, I would never say something so dumb. You know, look at all the letters after my name. You know, we might rehearse for an interview group that we have just the right thing to say. Superiority conceit can gather around attainments, around meditative achievements, competitive meditating. <laughs> maybe I'll just sit a little longer at the end of the sitting. Maybe someone will notice. You know. <laughs> maybe I'll you know, be the one who never veers off my walking path. I wonder if anyone will notice. We might see someone shuffling and restless in the hall and have a moment of compassion is followed by the sense, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. We might judge another person about their acts or their ignorance, sure, that we would never act in the same way. In the early years of my practice, when I practiced in the Mahayana tradition, I lived on the top of a mountain, and together, the community of us spent many hours contemplating those poor people in the lesser vehicle down the mountain. In a, we were in the great vehicle, you know. We didn't just live in a high mountain. We lived on a high mountain of conceit. And at times, it must be said, some of the most enthusiastic bowers can have superiority conceit. It's easy to spot superiority conceit when it manifests in, in bragging or, you know, imposing our importance or uh, excellence upon the world, when it manifests as arrogance. But it can also be so subtle, superiority conceit. You know, I remember when my children were small, they would have this mantra, look at me, look at me, look at me. <laughs> oh, she's... <laughs> infatuated with our own specialness, even if it's painful. No one's the same at me. Sometimes superiority conceit can even manifest as a kind of false modesty. You know, of course I'm wonderful, but please don't mention it too much. <laughs> it's a story of a, a much-venerated rabbi on his deathbed, you know, and some of his students and community came to visit him before he died, and they stood around his deathbed as he lay there with his eyes closed, extolling all his virtues, you know. Oh, this was the most learned rabbi of all time. Oh, his kindness was boundless, you know. Oh, his scholarliness, he was so fantastic. Oh, his... His, uh, he was so erudite, you know, such a wonderful community. Stood around for ages just extolling his virtues, and they left. And his wife looked at the old rabbi on his bed and noticed he looked a little restless. And she said, 
Husband, what is the matter? You've just had all this wonderful praise from all your students. You've made such a mark on the world. He says, yes, but nobody mentioned my humility. (laughs) (coughs) Superiority conceit can feel like a very safe refuge, you know. It looks like a good destination to inhabit. Certainly looks a lot better than inferiority conceit. But in truth, they both cause the same suffering. And superiority conceit, of course, lives in fear of loss, but it distorts compassion into its near enemy of pity. And locked in superiority conceit, we leave a very big footprint in the world. You know, Dogen, he once said, in speaking of non-dependence of mind, he said, coming, going, the water birds, don't leave a trace, don't follow a path. Locked into uh, locked into better and worse, we can become very preoccupied with praise and with blame. Superiority conceit cannot withstand blame and seeks for praise. We often live in fear of others in superiority conceit, fear that somehow we will be toppled. And we are actually in superiority conceit, I think, very far from a bow. (laughs) Now, the other side of mana is inferiority conceit. And perhaps this is something we might be more familiar with, to feel less than, worse than, inferior to, lower than, the chronic sense of so endemic in our culture of unworthiness. And in the torment of inferiority conceit, when we feel the whole world somehow is better than we are, we can look with a certain envy at those who seem to inhabit the seemingly better world of superiority conceit, because they look invulnerable. We imagine that they're much happier than we are, and we just need to grow a bigger self. We imagine the remedy for our torment of endlessly feeling unworthy is to become like those who walk through the world with a certain assurance and confidence. We find envy and resentment and this sense of lack goes round and round in a vicious circle. And at times it can be so subtle. And, and to acknowledge that much of our economy actually relies upon inferiority conceit and constantly perpetuating the myth of lack, and the material lack, deficiency, deprivation, not good enough. And rooted in this belief system in lack and insufficiency, of course, the selling of these empty promises of how to get out of this torment 
you know, if we just had the perfect body, all the things that we need to have and become. And we see that often one of the outcomes of inferiority conceit, it can just be despair and resignation, but it can also be greed and striving. And inferiority conceit really lives within this kind of very dark world of I'm not enough, I don't have enough, I need. Very, very contrary, I might say, to the abode of an enlightened heart that could ask what in this moment is lacking and feel that nothing is lacking. Inferiority conceit is also the forerunner of scraping. You know, we create heroes and we create heroines that seem to occupy, occupy a landscape quite impossible for us. And I think bearing in mind certainly one of the greatest causes of death of women is domestic violence. You know, and not to be simplistic about that, but superiority and inferiority conceits can lock themselves together in a lethal marriage. It can be very subtle too. Inferiority conceit can lead us to see that liberation is impossible for us. And one thing that it does, it makes us very difficult to hold goals or even aspirations with skillfulness. We know how to bow to others, but we might find it very difficult to bow to ourselves. And for many, learning to bow to themselves is perhaps a step in realizing that a bow can just be a bow, where all ideas of self and other of worthiness and unworthiness fall away. I notice in many Western practitioners an absolute allergy to even the word goals, never mind aspirations. It's hard because in our culture and very personally, we may have seen goals to be, get surrounded by ambition and forcing and striving and tension and a terrible fear of failure. And we can come to believe that goals and holding goals causes us to suffer. And then sometimes we might say to ourselves, well, I have no goals in my practice. We might find it very, very hard to say that I practice actually to know the same freedom than the, that the Buddha and countless yogis in, over time discover. We might say, find it very hard to say to ourselves, I practice to be liberated. And I think one of the very real steps on this path, because there are goals, you know, we are, you know, if I can use that word without anybody having a hissy fit, you know, there are goals, you know, and peace, compassion, liberation, you know, awakening, you know, depth, you know, inner development, transformation. Excuse me, you know. (laughs) There are goals in this path. (laughs) And, you know, perhaps one of the practice steps in this path is to come to see it was actually never the goals that caused us to suffer. But it is way, the way that the conceit of self tied itself to goals 
that caused us to suffer and can cause us to suffer. That the conceit of self ties itself to goals and then thinks in terms of success and fears failure, is always looking for my progress, my lack of progress, all the judgments and the comparisons that follow the conceit of self tying itself to goals. And to avoid the suffering, we, tend to, we can tend to surrender aspiration or feel that freedom's not possible for us, only for others. In truth, I think there's a tremendous wisdom in learning to be really, really comfortable with goals and aspirations. It's to, first of all, to learn, first of all, to see and to understand, and, the thir- and thirdly, to liberate ourselves from the conceit of self that ties itself to aspirations. We practice to be liberated. We practice because it seems impossible. We practice to reclaim that sense of possibility. And in each moment that we bow, we are bowing to that understanding. The bow in that moment is an invitation to understand what it means to liberate the moment, to be able to let go of inferiority, conceit, which is to lay down the immense burden of self-judgment and blame and envy and fear. In the last year, I was teaching a retreat for uh, those who teach mindfulness-based stress reduction in various settings throughout the world, actually. And one of the themes that arose often is that uh, these people would say to us, but I'm not good enough to teach this. You know, Satan is very, uh, you know, I'm just not good enough to do this. And I say, great, none of us are good enough to do this. When I'm totally liberated, I will be good enough to do this. I don't feel bad about that. (laughs) You know, then that's fine. It means that we have something to learn, doesn't it? It means that we're on a path of learning. It means that we're not occupying a position of conceit that says, you know, I'm either totally so good to do this or I'm absolutely useless. Okay, I'm learning. I'm on a path of learning. And to me, that's she like, I could be really at ease with that. To learn to let go of inferiority conceit is a way of ennobling our lives and our hearts. It's to bring dignity and authenticity. And to lay down inferiority conceit does not leave a vacuum behind it, but it releases our capacity for mudita, for appreciative joy, to celebrate love, to rejoice in the good fortune of others and to rejoice in our own blessings. When we see the suffering of superiority conceit and the suffering of inferiority conceit, we might think that equality conceit is the middle path. But I think it isn't. It's a conceit of reductionism. We're all schmucks swimming in this cesspit of samsara together. 
You know, we're all greedy, we're all confused, we're all deluded, we're all the same, we're all suffering. I think we can find something very comforting and very reassuring in this kind of reductionism. You know, we see our own delusions reflected in the lives and hearts and others. We find fault and imperfection in our heroes and heroines. And then we feel, I'm not so bad after all. You know, my sense that equality can seek can be a kind of disillusionment with human possibility. That we look at those who appear to be loftier or more enlightened or wiser than us, and all we want to see is their flaws. To me, it was so interesting, you know, when Al Gore's documentary got an Oscar award. Immediately, the day after the newspapers published his electricity bills. You know, and there was this great satisfaction in saying, you know, oh, yeah, sure, he made this neat documentary, but look, you know, he's just like us. He uses all this electricity. Didn't mention all the other things he did about carbon offsetting and all this other stuff. Is the world a better place because that documentary came out? Probably. But the unbearer, you know, that, that capacity not to be able to bear that someone actually might actually be a little more informed, <laughs> you know, or have a little advice to offer. When in, in equality conceit, you know, we, we look at those who seem worse than us, more, more confused or more deluded than us, and we know we've been there in a way we feel relieved of a bow at all. You know, I think equality conceit can lead to a kind of cynicism, a sort of bitterness, a hopelessness can be its outcome. I'd like to look at the ways some of these conceits might play out. Now, suppose Narayan and I, or I, one sitting, just sort of fell off our cushion. <laughs> All right. <laughs> or we drop our plate in the dining room. Now, if we were locked in superiority conceit, we would probably feel mortified. It would dent our self-image. If we were locked in inferiority conceit, we probably actually wouldn't be here. But even if by some accident we ended up here and we fell off our cushion, we'd tell you it was a teaching. <laughs> we'd still be devastated because now everyone would know we ended up here by accident. And if we were locked in equality conceit, we'd probably say, don't expect anything else. We're all dull. It's all there is, you know. Do this practice and you just stay dull. <laughs> now just change it around a little bit and suppose you were locked in one of these threefold conceits and we fell off our cushion. <laughs> 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 
If you were locked in inferiority conceit, you would probably feel so disappointed in us. Oh, they're supposed to be beyond all of this. If you were locked in superiority conceit, you'd probably feel a little smug. You know, <laughs> they fell off their cushion. You know. <laughs> I'm still upright, you know. And if you were locked in equality conceit, you'd probably feel quite consoled and think, oh, good, now I can sleep happily the rest of my sittings. <laughs> now, what we notice about these conceits is they all lead to a lot of storytelling. They all lead to a lot of storytelling about myself, who I am, and they all lead to a lot of storytelling about other people, about who you are. And all that storytelling is continually forming these views of self in relationship to views of other. Now turn the same scene around and you topple off your cushion or you drop your plate in the dining room. And how would this threefold conceit play out? Just imagine it. Dropping your lunch in the, af- in the middle of the dining room. Inferiority conceit, you might suffer for hours. You might bring in years of history. <laughs> every failure, every mortification, every moment of exposure. You'd feel terrible. Blame yourself. If you were locked in superiority conceit, you'd be terribly judgmental of being exposed. Actually, both it's interesting that both inferiority conceit and superiority conceit lead to a lot of judgment. If you were locked in equality conceit, you might be hoping somebody else is going to drop their plate. <laughs> Now, what we see in this threefold conceit is the process of selfing, the process of fixing and solidifying view of I, view of you. And actually, you know what? This is what practice is intended to liberate, to deeply liberate. And in a way, first we need to kind of sensitize ourselves to this process, not just the obvious manifestations of it, but the subtler ones that form themselves in judgment, comparison, striving, despair, self-view, I am. Notice how often that phrase comes up. Of I am, you are. Not so hard to see, but to learn not to become agitated, to learn to bow to those moments. Because here we can solidify suffering, or here We can liberate it. Now, I think that life, really seen wisely, is a tremendous ally in offering us the opportunities to let go of the conceit of self. There are times, actually, when our worlds fall apart. Deep disappointments that I spoke about the other evening. But other ways that our worlds can fall apart So unpredictably, an illness comes to us that isn't going to go away. A loss happens 
of someone or something that we've deeply treasured and we will never have them again. Hardship comes into our lives in many ways. And in those moments of tremendous adversity and tremendous difficulty, something in us knows that we can't always fix this. We can't control it. We can't make it go away. You know what? In those moments, the conceit of I is eroded simply by the nature of life, by the circumstances of our lives, the circumstances of our bodies, of our minds. We know we can't control it. There is no more that we can do. Now, in those moments, we can sink into despair and panic and fear, or those moments can be profoundly liberating and the beginning of a very deep sense of compassion. And a teacher was once asked, what is the secret of your equanimity? And they answered, the wholehearted, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. We might say that this is the secret of both mindfulness and joy and compassion. Suzuki Roshi speaks of the bow as a way of challenging mana, as a way of challenging the conceit of self, all the ways that we hold ourselves apart, contracted, all the ideas of ourselves as being better or worse or the same as, that the bow is a way of ending suffering. said, when everything exists within your big mind, all dualistic relationships drop away. There is no distinction between heaven and earth, teacher and disciple. Sometimes a man bows to a woman. Sometimes a woman bows to a man. Sometimes the disciple bows to the master. Sometimes the master bows to the disciple. Sometimes the master and disciple bow together to the Buddha. Sometimes we may bow to cats and dogs. In your practice, you should accept everything as it is, giving to each thing the same respect given to a Buddha. Here there is Buddhahood. The Buddha bows to the Buddha, and you bow to yourself. This is the true bow. Now clearly, Suzuki Roshi, in those words, was not speaking about a physical gesture although he could be, but he was speaking truly about an attitude of heart, an attitude of welcome, of respect, of unconditional willingness to cooperate with the unavoidable. Whether it is lovely or difficult, times of ease or times of hardship. Nagarjuna said, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? And the bow is stop wanting it to go away. This is a liberation, liberating ourselves moment by moment, bow by bow, from all the torment of resistance and aversion, the exaggerated responsibility to fix, to get rid of, to liberate ourselves as a conceit of self. Then a bow is simply a bow to what is. This is our life. This is all life. And when I was teaching in Cuba 
few weeks ago where conditions were extraordinarily difficult and where, you know, nothing really worked. You know, a day and a half without water and there was small potatoes. You, you know, it's like nothing worked. And I, I, on the second day, I looked over at my translator who'd gone with me to Cuba and I, I saw him sitting there with this huge smile on his face. And I said, Eduardo, what are you so happy about? I said, this is all so incredibly difficult. He says, he says, I finally got it. He says, I've been hearing you guys say this for 25 years, 30 years, that you can't count on anything, <laughs> that you can't cling to anything, that you can't predict anything, that you can't grasp hold of anything. He says, I just got it. He says, I think this is what enlightenment is like. (laughs) And in truth, he kept that smile on his face for the next two weeks. Suzuki Roshi says, we practice bowing as long as our life is. That to bow is to open our heart to this moment, to respect, to care. To bow is to learn to let go of the conceit of I that keeps us locked in this very small world of competitiveness and fear and striving and despair. And we can begin then to hold that world with compassion, to hold with compassion the vast amount of suffering in our world that is really born of the conceit of self between people, between countries, between communities, and hold with compassion the same suffering that is born of the conceit of self in our own being. Now, not all pain in the world in life can be fixed, but all pain, all hardship and adversity can be met with a bow. And some of this torment in our world, the pain that is born of the conceit of self, the pain of unworthiness, of judgment, of bitterness, it can be healed with wisdom with the wisdom, the deep wisdom, of knowing how to see the emptiness of this conceit of self. I'd like just to end with a short poem. It says, You know the sprout is hidden inside the seed. We struggle. None of us has gone far. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. The blue sky opens out further and further. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in that world. Just a moment, quietly together. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from division. May all beings be free.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.